0: Blog Talk
1: Radio
0: Good morning. Thank you for joining us for Three Women 3 Ways, where the show that kind of tackles tough things on occasion. And we've got another one of those tough things today that we're tackling. We're talking about rape, but we're standing here, or, well, we're sitting here, and we're talking about it from the standpoint of why do men benefit from rape? How do they benefit from rape? And I am very fortunate to have the gentleman who phrased that question, who framed that question for me. Um, I had never really thought of it that way. I guess we always think, if we really take the time to analyze it, that people do things because they derive some sort of benefit from it. Um, but I'd never really thought of it that way when it comes to rape. So um, we have a gentleman who wrote an article in Voicemail magazine, in which if you haven't uh, gotten to that magazine yet, you need to, Voicemail, M-A-L-E. And it is a, a magazine dedicated to men and men's reactions to violence and um, uh, feminism and that kind of, those kinds of issues. Dr. Christopher Kilmartin is with us today. Dr. Kilmartin, thank you for joining us. Would you like thank me you to call for you? Having me. Would you like me to call you anything other than Dr. Kilmartin? I'm perfectly you comfortable can, with you that. You can call me, Chris, if you like. That, that, that okay. That fine as well. All right. Great. We're kind of informal here. Um, Chris, you uh, wrote an article. You authored an article that caught my attention. How do men benefit from rape? Well... Clearly, the obvious answer is the rapist benefits in some way. Uh, They used to think that it was a a sexual benefit. Now, uh, of course, our thinking is more around the the feeling of, or the the, uh, answer of control, that the benefit is control, not so much any kind of physical um, um, pleasure from sex. Um, That seems pretty obvious. But you contend that all men, In some respect, benefit from rape.
1: Interesting take. You want to explain um, that a little bit? Sure. Well, let me give you give you an analogy. um, That um, in the days of state sponsored slavery in the United States, um, violence was used to justify and maintain a system of of inequality. Um, The worst part of that was lynching um, and uh, when someone was lynched it, it wasn't it wasn't just about him, usually him. Um, one of the things that they did was they left the bodies you know like hanging for days um, and lynching was basically to serve notice to the entire uh, slave community that if they challenged the dominant group that they would they would be in great danger so, if we think about the system of inequality uh, in in, in the current day or that's been around for a long time with men as a group dominating women as a group. And when I say that, uh, I, 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 we, we know that um, men and women, uh, you know, there's great individual variation among men's dominance and great variation of you know, around women's subordination, but as a group, you know, um, men dominate. Um, And so uh, what happens then is that some men who do commit sexual assault, that other men get some dominance out of that um, in the same way that white slaveholders who weren't violent um, still gained uh, some some sort of benefit from the men who were. And so uh, it keeps women in a subordinate role uh, as a group, and it keeps men in a dominant role as a group. Okay.
0: Men aren't always aware of this, are they? I mean, this isn't some obvious thing that
1: they're thinking. Um, Where is it? No, I would, I would, I would never uh, suggest that this is this is uh, purposeful. Um, uh, by any, in any means, but you know, do people uh, gain some some advantage. I mean, you know, especially in a, in a culture like ours that is so individualistic. I mean, we don't think in group terms very much. We don't think in in social system kind of terms. We think in individual terms. And so, um, if if I'm gaining, I mean, I I have gained tremendous. Um, advantage by being a white heterosexual male in this culture, but I don't necessarily think of myself as being advantaged, right? Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, you have to kind of notice that. So it's it's sort of like if you're, you know, if you're in first class on a plane, you don't realize that people are cramped and uncomfortable uh, um, unless you turn around and look, right? And, right. um, and we can extrapolate that privilege in either direction, you know, that it, if you're in first class on a plane, you're disadvantaged compared to people who have private planes, right? And even the people in <laughs> coach are quite advantaged, like most people in the world can't afford a plane ticket. So how advantaged you are, um, I think, depends on paying, how much you're paying attention and depends on whom you are comparing yourself with. It's interesting. I always, my, uh, my in-laws
0: were very well-to-do. And my father-in-law, who inherited wealth and ran a business that, you know, you, people would probably recognize if I said it, he never thought of himself as particularly wealthy because the people who moved in next door to them um, had, had more wealth than they did in their rather exclusive community. And so did the people down the road. They had more wealth. And so my father-in-law, who was extremely wealthy, never saw himself as wealthy. He always, you know, compared himself to those people as opposed to comparing himself with (laughs) all the other (laughs) folks that are out there that didn't even have a tenth of what he had. Um, And I always thought that, that, you know, everything is relative, isn't it? You you get where you fit in life. There's always something else that you need to have. There's always some other power you desire. There's always some other item you desire. And there's always somebody who's better off than you are. And uh, it's kind of an interesting phenomenon how we we fit into those niches. And we don't recognize, as you said, we don't look back into the the cabin of the plane um, and pay any attention to all those people that don't even have a, a, a little bit of what we have. So that's an interesting analogy, I think. Um,
1: I don't sit around my house and, and say, oh, you know, I have water that comes directly into the house, and more rooms than yeah.
0: one. <laughs> yeah, look at
1: me, I great, oh, <laughs> right, and I have a little <laughs> box on the wall that controls the temperature. Uh, um, so, uh, you know, I'm always uh, struck by that Life magazine picture of, I think it's an Austrian boy in a prisoner of war camp, in abject joy because the Red Cross has given him a pair of shoes. And huh. and he's he's just the happiest person in the world. So yeah, it's a, it's about whom you're comparing yourself with, and in an individualistic culture, people think in such individualistic terms that um, and that affects how the extent to which people are willing to have empathy for people in subordinated groups. And so you can always find a counterexample and then ignore the the systemic kind of uh, subordination that's going on, right? So uh, there are lots of people who believe that racism and sexism are over because Oprah is a billionaire. You know, you can always find that. There are white men who are completely disadvantaged in this world, and there are people of color who are advantaged. But if you look at the things in the aggregate, uh, you see a a very different kind of picture
0: you know you when you said um, um, and and I'm trying to remember how you phrased it, I'm probably not going to um but when you talk uh, you know what, let me come back to that okay, I'm sorry, to sound disjointed here um, okay. do you apply this same theory to any kind of gendered violence? You know what? I've been negligent here on two accounts. One is explaining your credentials, which is that you are uh, uh, an emeritus college professor. Uh, You have a few other things thrown in there that we could get to, comedian, actor, playwright. Um, But you also are a professional psychologist, and you've authored four different books on gender and gender-based violence. And uh, you are recognized as an expert on uh, gender and violence prevention, gendered violence prevention. So those are kind of your, your you know, um, credentials there for for having this topic. What brought you to this field? What mm-hmm. what made you um, take an interest in gendered violence?
1: Well, I, you know, I, I sometimes think of my early career as a, a series of meaningful coincidences. I, I was um, I was in graduate school in the mid '80s, and um, one of my uh, fellow students, who's further along in her program, she was teaching a course in the psychology of women. And she said to me, it seems to me that something ought to be said about the men, but I don't know what it is, and I don't know if it yeah. should come from me. Um, would you be interested in um, doing some research and putting together a guest lecture in the psychology of men? And um, this is what I tell people, when you're a graduate student and somebody says, can you do this? And you're not sure whether you can or not. You say yes, I can, and then you go figure <laughs> out how to do I it. Of course, I can do that. That's the way yeah. in which you grow, right? So I I went to the library. Remember that going to? Oh the yes, I
0: remember going to library. Isn't that quaint?
1: <laughs> and I um, yes, and I got out all the gender aware books on men that were available at the time. Both, both of them. them.
0: You took both of them. Yeah. <laughs> and
1: i uh, it just grabbed me. I mean, I love psychology, but I had never been so captivated by a topic as this. And the, and the first thing that really astounded me, still does to some extent, is, is the thing called the mortality gap, the fact that men were dying um, seven years earlier than women on average. And today it's five and a half in the United States. In Russia it's 13 years. And wow. part of that difference is physiological, but most of it is behavioral, and that means preventable. And so it was amazing to me that the toxic side of masculinity was quite literally killing us. Um, and uh, so I became very interested in that at a time when nobody was really, and very few people, I'll say this, were, were really talking about it. And so, the, and then, so, so you start looking at gender differences, sex differences in behavior, and the one that just flew out at me is the fact that men commit nearly 90% of all violent crimes. Now, I always hasten to add, the fact is that the vast majority of men are not violent. So this is not it's not male bashing to suggest that there's something gendered about violence. Um, that that most men are good men, and we have to keep that in mind because otherwise the the conversation gets shut down very quickly. When you say, oh, oh you're, yes. you're male bashing, right? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I think the real male bashing is to say boys will be boys and that there's nothing we can do, you know, or to suggest that men are these simple creatures who are incapable of being good human beings because most of us are. So that's what really grabbed me. Uh, about it was this this very important and very large behavioral sex difference in uh, physical aggression, and so I came I came at I don't have a kind of a dramatic story about um, you know my wife or girlfriend or mother being raped, um, but in the course of listening to women's voices, meeting a lot of survivors. Uh, I, I came to understand it at a, at a deeper level, but I did start off uh, being interested in it at a scholarly level.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that you know I, I'm also <laughs> I'm, I, I'm an elderly graduate student um, in psychology, and I appreciate what you're saying about your interest in kind of how people work um you know how it, it can be fascinating even if it's not a necessarily a topic that you have personal experience with so i can appreciate that um so why did you come to the conclusion that all men can benefit from rape what else was brought into the mix um so that you you develop that approach to it
1: well, yeah, I guess it was a, a curiosity. And, you know, they, using the word benefit, like it almost sounds like I, I, I want to be clear that I'm not saying this is a good thing for men.
0: Oh, of course um, not. Because I'm sorry it is I, not, yeah.
1: because it causes women to be afraid of us, legitimately so. And, um, and so, but as I began to listen to men's voices, men who were not sympathetic to the problem of sexual assault, and the level in which they that they they would make jokes about it, for instance, or that they would um, or they that they would engage in a lot. And women do this too, but engage in a lot of victim blaming. Um, and uh, and I think that part of it is now again this this is a th- another one of my little theories is that um, when you become aware. Inequality, you become accountable for it. And so, if if uh, men are going to have to understand how they benefit from a whole system of gender inequality, inequality um, then you know it's it's an inconvenience. You know, uh, so um, so I think once you become aware, you become accountable, and therefore. One strategy, and I don't think it's a conscious one, uh, is to not become aware. You know, if Mm -hmm. I don't believe, you know, if I believe that racism and sexism are over, then I don't have to deal with the fact that I've been given a a real leg up in this world, and I don't have to deal with the fact that I need to be aware of other people's disadvantages. So um, it's, and then I don't have to feel guilty uh, about my privilege or or anything else. So I think that and and the way things are often framed, you know, gender-based violence is often framed as a women's issue. Yes. Um, and even though men are doing the vast majority of it, so uh, I think that we need I, to get to a point you know, where we're talk where men are talking to men about this uh, much more than they are now, and where people are are you know promoting. A sense of empathy for victims of interpersonal violence, because I think that we have um, we have great empathy for people who are victims of random violence, because we can't we can't distance ourselves emotionally and psychologically from them. I could have been in the Twin Towers that day. I could have been in Norris Hall at Virginia Tech that day. But if I just blame the victim and say, "Well, I wasn't—I wouldn't have been stupid enough to be married to this violent man, or I wouldn't have been stupid enough to wear that to the party and drink that much,"
0: mm-hmm. then
1: I don't have to, you know, um, then I don't have to have any kind of empathy for people who suffer um, this this interpersonal violence.
0: Yeah, I, I yeah, and we see that all the time, don't we? It's our, I, I as I was mentioning off air, I've become a little bit. More, um, well, not necessarily more empathetic, but uh, less judgmental uh, about the well. Why did she pick him? Why does she always pick those guys? Why, you know, why didn't she just leave? Why, why, why? You know, the victim blaming that we do when we come to that. Why was she wearing that? Why was she in that bar? Why was she drinking that much? Why was she this, this, and this? All of that uh, in, uh, victim blaming that we see. Is in fact um, a survivalist tactic for the blamers.
1: Yes, it's that a security I mean, operation that's...
0: because if I don't do this, yeah, those exactly, things, exactly. And we all to want be... to feel secure. We all want to feel then secure. I, so I, okay. I try to not be yes. judgmental about when those attitudes come out. I, I try to be, uh, you know, to take a more educational approach to it. But boy, it can sure, uh, it can sure be annoying, can it? <laughs> yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, and what I always so, tell people is that vic- I think of victims, especially of sexual assault, will engage in self-blame. Because, mm-hmm. um, and again, so rather than if I don't do those things, I'm safe. If I don't do them again, then I'm safe. So what I always tell people is you do not have to waste your energy blaming victims because they are often experts at doing it, doing it themselves. Oh, yeah. um, and often you will also hear people say, if I had been there, I would have done this. And, um, and that's called a postdiction. It's the opposite of prediction. And postdictions are notoriously unreliable. You do not know what you would have done. Um, no. Also, with sexual assault, by the way, uh, somewhere in the neighborhood, and studies are variant, but of 40% of sexual assault victims show a, a, a tonic immobility response. It's a freeze response, and it's involuntary. And so I so said, why didn't you fight him off? Why didn't you, um, you know, why didn't you kick him or anything like that? Well, they, they were paralyzed. I mean, quite literally paralyzed. Um, and uh, uh, Rebecca Campbell, who's this terrific psychologist in uh, Michigan, um, helps explain. She does this uh, in law enforcement trainings to help people understand how trauma scrambles the brain. And, uh, and this is... By the way, another reason why I think you know what's been getting some attention lately is the affirmative consent standard, uh, and that is that a lot of colleges, and in fact, in the entire state of California, they have adopted this for every college. Is that the absence of a no is is not sufficient? There must be the presence of a yes, and there, and I think the atomic immobility response is an excellent uh, reason why we need an affirmative consent standard. Um but people um it's not the way that the culture I mean how the culture um raised me as a teenage boy was uh if you like a girl and you try and kiss her and hopefully she kisses you back and after a while you uh you try and touch her breasts and if she says no or she pushes your hand away, that means try again later. So oh. <laughs> but if I'm okay. touching somebody or kissing somebody against their will, that's a that's a crime. I mean, I I you're not gonna probably not going to be held legally accountable for it, but it is a crime. It's no different, you know, to touch someone's breasts at you know, a stranger at the mall than if she is cons- kissing me consensually on the couch and um and doesn't want her breast to be touched. And so, um we have not done a good job at teaching boys and men to um, to appropriately and assertively ask for sex that being said I think we have to um, be aware that most sexual assaults are not the result of mere miscommunication Um, most are pre premeditated um, you know calculated predation and done by often by serial offenders so uh, you know the miscommunication uh, kind of belief is uh, is also used as a security operation you know that if uh, that if he you know if he just made a mistake he wasn't paying attention he's a good guy he'll never do it again he learned his lesson um, yeah. and then i mean the and and why should you know we have great empathy for these sexual assault offenders and when to look at what this judge did with the Stanford, um, rapist, oh my. Uh, a couple of weeks oh, ago. Oh my, but oh, he, very little. You know, empathy. and and the letter
0: this father's father wrote. We did that uh, that show last week where you know yeah. the really the father is writing um, that he's never going to be able to enjoy cooking a steak again. I mean, in what world is that equatable any any way shape or form to what this was this boy was 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 convicted of? I I. I You know, the thinking in that, and as a parent, I understand you do whatever you can for your kid, but that thinking was so offensive (laughs) Um, on on the part of the parent. Yes, there we go. Um, On the part of the parent, um, and and you're thinking, okay, so boys learn from their fathers. What did this boy learn from that father? Um, You know, just what message did this boy get And uh, in order to enable him to proceed and think that it was just fine to proceed with his actions? And then the messages that he got afterwards, this poor boy, his life is ruined, and of course we saw that with the Steubenville students yeah. and you know the community upheaval over, oh my gosh, do you know what you're doing to this young man? Do you know how you're ruining his life? Well, what about her life? You know, right. um, but I think that Uh, You know, this is a different show, but I I think that our culture has a basic mistrust of any woman. I I think that there's a a real uh, mistrust of anything a woman says or does in in our culture. That's my little theory. Mm. And whether you're in a a sports arena or whether you're in a family or whether you're in a courtroom, I think that distrust
1: um, follows women just about everywhere. Yeah, and this is... um you know manifest in the um, what many people believe that women very routinely falsely accuse men of sexual assault and, and that myth and uh, you know of course that does happen sometimes and it, to be falsely accused of, of of an act of violence would be a horrible horrible thing and I think we have to acknowledge that but it, it, you know you start to think ask yourself you know how 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 many times have I or anybody I know, a friend, a family member, um, told law enforcement that someone had committed a felony against me when, in fact, they had not in order to gain some sort of uh, some sort of advantage? Um, and so a myth does not have to be, you know, I have to acknowledge that sometimes false accusations happen. So it doesn't have to be totally false. I mean, but the, but the way myths operate is how they function, right? So, so, so if we believe that false accusation is commonplace, then the the um, the uh, default option is that she's not telling the truth when what the data. Are quite clear about is that the fault option is that she should be telling the truth, and she is, you know, more than ninety percent of the time. And so, um, if if I believe that women are routinely lie about this, then I, you know, and think about the consequences of this. The consequences of believing somebody who is lying to you about a trauma is, you know, I would feel. You know that somebody took advantage of my good nature, and I would be angry with that person, right? But what are the consequences of disbelieving somebody who's telling the truth? Well, you're going to you're going to add to the trauma if you do. Um, and so, in a lot of cases, um, I have just been looking at this uh, presentation on uh, rape culture that. Um, you know, the the mean estimate I have the data right here 428 first responders first responders from 15 police departments asked what percentage of rape reports do you think your gut feeling never happened 28% nearly one out of 3 said 50% or more oh my and, god yeah and these and um these are um Law enforcement folks, and one one of the things again, I I really would recommend strongly if you're interested in this, um, Rebecca Campbell's National Institute of Justice uh, presentation for law enforcement. She um, she helps them understand, you know, they say, well, that she changed her story. She must be lying, Uh, and uh, help her understand that this is what trauma does to to the story, to the narrative. You have to piece it back together. Um, Well, and
0: in any uh, crime that's committed, people's memories get moved around and jangled around. And I I was involved in something um, uh, about a year and a half ago, and I did my report and I let it go. And within the last month, I've gotten calls uh, saying, okay, we're following up on this report, and we're checking, you know, to do our final things, and now can you go over this once again? And I'm going, I can't even remember that it happened. You know, it's a year and a half yeah. later, of course. I'm not going to be able to give you the exact same story. I, I You know, I, it's just not there anymore. Um, right. You know, I mean, it's there in outline, but the details are gone. Uh, they're just not there. So if I say something different, am I lying about it?
1: Mm-hmm. I, You know, you know and the, the other thing is, you know, if I were going to lie about being sexually assaulted, wouldn't I make up a story that fits people's stereotypes of rape? Wouldn't I say this guy took out a weapon and he told me to undress and threatened to kill me? And you know, why would I say, well, we were out drinking and, um, you know, we were having a good time and then I had a little too much to drink and he said, you know, so why would, I, I was kissing him, I was attracted to him, I'm like, why would you make a story like that yeah. um, if you wanted people to believe you, you know. Uh, and mm-hmm. so one of the things that we need to do, and I've done some of this with law enforcement, is train them on how to effectively receive a report. Uh, from a victim, because many times the uh, it doesn't get any further than the police. It doesn't even get to a prosecutor. Uh, and then if, if you've got a serial offender, chances are good he's going to hurt somebody else.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've been a little negligent here. The phone number to call in if you have questions or comment um, for Dr. Martin is 646-378-0430. That's 646-378-0430. I also have the chat room open. There's a couple people in there. Uh, if you have a question or a comment, please uh, let me know, and I will ask it for you. How often does uni- in the United States does sexual assault occur? Well, um, <laughs> in the general public, it's about 284,000 uh, uh, victims, ages 12 or older, who were uh, sexually assaulted in one year. That's from RAINN, R-A-I-N-N, and uh, their statistics are are pretty accurate, I believe. Um, How many were sexually um, uh, attacked by intimates? Well, you're looking at more than 80,600. Children, 61,000. And in the military, 18,900 experienced uh, unwanted sexual contact. Now, Dr. Kilmartin, you've worked in the military. Does that sound like a reasonable statistic to you?
1: Well, reasonable in in the in the sense that it's accurate. It's not reasonable that it's happening, obviously. Um, yes. But that but but that number is actually down from 26,000 in um in 2012, I believe so. The military is making some progress in that regard. Um but the, the The data that, you know, the military collects a tremendous amount of data. And um, the nice thing, if you're doing research with the military and the military says, you know, you will uh, fill out this survey, then you will. And uh, and so um, you get a very, very high return rate, and you don't have to worry too much about sampling error um, because you're sampling everybody. So, uh, so those, those, that statistic is, uh, for, for my money, very, very reliable one. Um, and in these last two years, three years, uh, rapes have gone down in the military and reports have gone up. Now, of course, there's still way too many. Um, but, you know, I think we, we have to think in terms of both continuity and change at the same time.
0: When you're talking about the military, and we go back full circle to our original comment, which is that other men benefit, can see benefits because of a rape culture. How does that translate to the military?
1: Well, it, I, you know, I think that it it allows men to. I mean, the military is a pretty masculine kind of uh, yes. yeah, culture, obviously, and it allows. Justifying the exclusion of women from, uh, you know, roles of in, institutional power, um, and again, that's all very slowly changing. And of course, there are um, people who are who are good male allies to women. You know, I don't want to get into the, this sure. idea that all men, you know, are, are, you know, hate women because it's absolutely not true. Of course um, not. But this is the statistic that I think is probably the most important one um, with military sexual assault, is that when a commander condones or participates in a hostile work environment for women, women under his command are at a 600 percent increased risk for sexual assault. So, um, And that means that if, if that's a causal relationship, that means we can stop 85 percent of it tomorrow by removing the commanders who create those kinds of environments and, um, and teaching everyone to provide, uh, you know, a, a respectful environment. and But it goes into, you know, the, the whole of American culture and, and many cultures throughout the world um, that um, – uh, excuse me, I lost my train of thought here um, – how, how does how does the oh, this how, rape book benefit other
0: military people besides sex offenders?
1: Uh, gosh, I'm so sorry. Um,
0: <laughs> hey, that I, I'm relieved. It happens to me frequently, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so <laughs> no problems there. Let's move on to an, another question that I have, um, and that is, what about? Um, you know, when we're talking about uh, that rape culture, where where does it cross the line between normal male uh, behavior and rape culture? What I'm thinking of is when you were talking about um, kind of creating an environment where it's not a bad thing um, to um, place women on some sort of uh, – playing where they are fair game. I'm thinking of, you know, sports uh, teams. I mean, I I used to teach in a a high school, and the coach was always, if he wanted to kind of put those boys down, they were, come on, ladies, you know, just that whole notion of, you know, okay, you have to be something more than what this woman is perceived as or you are perceived as less than what you are. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, you know, the, we raise boys with the worst insult we can give them is, you know, you run like dance, like, look like, walk like a girl. And so we give, as the most toxic cultural message, we define masculinity as anti-femininity. And um, and then how big a leap from I hate the feminine to, you know, disrespect for women. The other thing, and I finally got back what I wanted to say earlier, which is uh, that sexism is still uh, in many cases seen as a, uh, as a, you know, acceptable social activity. So that, um, so for instance, one of my students told me one time that he had gone to uh, some friends' houses, they had had dinner together, and he said, and then we played a board game called Battle of the Sexes. And I tried to imagine a board game called Battle of the Races, or, or a board game called Jews versus Christians, um, very few people would find that acceptable. And look how casually people talk about, oh, here's the difference between men and women and throw out all these stereotypes uh, so, so that, you know, we know, at least I, I like to think that most people know that you're not supposed to be racist, right? But sexism is seen as, you know, just the way I was raised. Um, and it gets reproduced easily within families. And we have got to end um, sexism as an appropriate social activity. I think that's a very important uh, step forward. Um, And so uh, I I, I was looking at Facebook uh, last week, and people have posted a uh, a talk, I don't know, about the male and the female brain. And this... um, this guy was talking about, oh, how men have a compartment for this in their brain, they have a compartment for that, and everybody's laughing. You know, would would be people laughing if he were saying, this is what black people's brains are like and white people's brains are like. Many, many fewer people would find that to be acceptable and funny. Um, yeah. And it, we think about this language of battle of the sexes, you know, which is the most curious battle in the history of humankind, where 90% of the combatants are allegedly in love with and having children with the enemy. Uh, and we use the, even the term the opposite sex. You know, the, the sexes are not opposite, uh, and um, and so we we pit men and women against each other um, in many ways um, that has to stop. I, I do not think gender-based violence will stop until we start to see men and women as being on the same team.
0: That was going to be my next question. If we can, in fact. Um, realize that we're all on the same team here, will, what will that
1: do for gender-based violence? Well, it, it, will, it will help, you know, I, you know, I think this, I, I'm not saying that this is some sort of panacea, you know, for, um, that this will fix it overnight, but most men behave in sexist ways to win the approval of other men. Uh, mm-hmm. so the example I was giving I was like, Hey, when you yelled hey baby, shake it up at me across the street from across the street I thought you might be um interested in me and thought you might like to go have a cup of coffee sometime. Said no woman ever. Right? So <laughs> nothing,
0: exactly. It, it <laughs> I was just watching uh right. one of the, the new um uh shows for Orange is the New Black. And the convict who is driving the prison van, is driving the uh, five prison guards with her, and uh, they're talking about her in the the most uh, salacious and and, uh, demeaning ways. And she just kind of sits there behind her steering wheel and says, you know, it really makes me hot when you talk about me as if I'm a, you know, blah, 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 and, and she's pointing out what she's doing. And, she's, and if you really wanted to talk to me about such and such, that would really make me hot. <laughs> Just kind of right. pointing out that really, seriously, you think this is going to be an attractive approach for this woman, you know. Right. Um, so and yet when men there it start
1: to disapprove of other men's sexism, they, they will call them out on it, you know, and and, um, and so if men behave in these ways to win other men's approval and they get other men's disapproval, then they may stop doing it, you know. And look at, I mean, the, the, the most recent really egregious example of rape culture that I remember seeing was um, the uh, Old Dominion University fraternity house on move-in week. Um, I actually have the... They hung bed sheets out in front of the house um, that were spray painted, and um, they, this is what they say, rowdy and fun, hope your baby girl is ready for a good time. The, another one said, freshman daughter drop off with a arrow pointing to the front door. And then the other one said, go ahead and drop off mom too. And oh my um, gosh. so they're basically <laughs> saying, you know, well, you know, I mean, at the at best, what we have here is uh, is uh, you know, oh well, our sexuality is indiscriminate, and um, at worst, what we have is a pretty egregious case of, of rape culture. And imagine yeah. driving your first year college student daughter to school and having to drive by and see that. And and the thing that I always like to point out about this is, does this mean that we have a house full of rapists here? No, it doesn't. You know, might there be some sexually aggressive men in that house? Yes, there might. And might they feel like their behavior is normative when they see other guys doing this? Yes, they probably do. And were there men in that house who were uncomfortable with this? Probably were. And why didn't they speak up? Because, uh, and we have good research on this, because they overestimate um, other men's sexism so that they feel like, oh, I'm uncomfortable, but I appear to be, it's like laughing at a joke that you don't think is funny. I watched you laugh at that joke. I would think you thought it was funny unless you let me in on your private reaction, which men are not always exactly famous for doing. So so what we have is uh, the good guys who don't speak up and challenge the other guys because they think that they're gonna get other men's disapproval if they do, when actually there's probably more support for their minority what they what they what they perceive to be their minority opinion. And then the other thing about these bed sheets and the spray painting, like how long do you think it took them to do this? This isn't isn't an impulsive kinds of things. They, clearly they talked about it they went and bought the bed sheets and the spray paint they decided what they were going to write on them they planned this whole thing. this this was methodically planned and um there were many opportunities for people to say you know even to say you know this might not make us look too good how about that just even from their own self interest to say you know and in fact the fraternity i believe was suspended so uh, this is the, just even to say you know the, don't we Care about our reputation, um, you know even from a, even from a selfish kind of point of view, or better yet for somebody to say, "You know I think that would be that would make women very uncomfortable, and why do we want to do that
0: yeah, and why do they want to do that? I mean it, there has to be some sort of more more of a motivation than um, okay, we think it's funny, or um, clearly, I mean, do they really think this would be an attraction to women? What is it that causes guys, especially the young ones, to think that this kind of behavior would be, I mean, are, are are they doing it to just kind of puff out their feathers, or are they doing it because they think it's an effective strategy to accomplish what they want to accomplish, which presumably would be intercourse with the opposite sex?
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, does, do you think that, that women would feel comfortable going to a house like this. Well, many times, um, believe it or not, they'd be like, "Well, it won't happen to me because I'm not that slut, right? I'm not that yeah. uh, that yeah. person." Um, that I, I don't think that they think that they're that they're going to get more sex by having these signs out. <laughs> um, but I do think that they they're basically saying, "We're in charge here." you know you are and this is what street harassment is about right you're here by our permission and you need to you need to uh, be subservient to us or uh, i mean this is an implicit violence threat that's going on here That's true um that's true. so um so you were it, talking, it doesn't have to hmm. happen to you for you to change your behavior right about yeah
0: you were talking about um, men speaking up in front of others. <clears throat> one of the things that struck me so much about the Steubenville uh, rapes um, is I listened to the tape, um, and at one point in the background, you can hear a young man saying something to the effect of "Come on, guys, what if that was your sister?" Yes. Yeah. That do you yeah. recall? Did you listen to that tape? I do, do you recall, recall that. that yeah. And at the time, I thought. What a brave guy is that young man.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, what a brave guy. Uh, no, he didn't have enough... He, he, well, he didn't have enough, you know, courage or whatever you, adjective you want to apply to it. To um, He wasn't courageous enough to, to pursue it. But the fact that he came out and made that statement within his peer group, which was clearly, you know, out of control with a different agenda, that took something um yeah. how come we don't have more yet you know i mean i i believe that if there had been a second man in that room who would have joined with him I, that whole thing might have taken a different tack and yet it didn't happen
1: right. or if the person why did the challenging had high social status in the group you know uh, what if he were true. the captain of the football team you know um and this is part of the leadership uh, kind of thing but um but, yes, we know, I mean, and this is one of the prevention approaches to help people understand that how you misperceive other people's sexism um, and to, you know, that to do an effective kind of intervention in a group, um, you, you, have to, you have to have thought about it. You know, you have to have been trained, um, and, and much of what we're doing with the work in both the military and colleges is bystander intervention work, where we're helping people to understand um, that uh, if you are offended by this, chances are you aren't the only one, and to give them the words that they can use and help them develop their own style of uh, intervening. Because, you know, how many times have we been in situations where we, in, in retrospect, we realized something was problematic, but we weren't equipped to deal with it in the moment? And how many times... Have you said later, oh, gosh, I wish I had said this? And uh, what I always tell people is if, if, you, if you think of something really good that you could have said, put it in your pocket because you might be able to pull it out later. You might be able to use it later. But it's very difficult to intervene in a bystander intervention kind of um, situation if you haven't thought about it and you haven't been trained to intervene. And a lot of what we're doing in the military is talking to people and trying to, really trying to amplify the voices of the good men who are in the vast majority.
0: Absolutely. And so how do we do this? Um, We're starting to talk about prevention. How do we um, change a culture um, a rape culture um how do we change a culture which makes men feel like uh, if they uh vary or if they stand out or if they uh object, they might be um jeopardizing their position in their group how How do we deal with that what What does prevention look like when we 're talking men who are just ordinary men, not the rapists
1: mm-hmm. well in in the kind of in the big picture there are there are a number of different things if we consider this a problem of the social structure of the culture when that structure changes some of the violence will change and part of that is we know that having a critical mass of a minority group um tend, that, that prejudice tends to be reduced by that we know that having men and women work together in cooperative equal status uh... kinds of situations uh... helps to reduce prejudice um, and then we help people, you know, we're always pre- presented as leadership role because, as, it, as I just said, if that guy in that Steubenville group had high social status, then he would have, um, he, he might have been listened to. You know, well, if we're in a military situation and that guy is the colonel and everybody else in the room are captains uh, or actually captains, different thing in the the navy than the air force but if everybody else in the room were lieutenants let's say the colonel is going to have a lot of sway and so it's very much of a leadership issue and then it's an issue of helping people to imagine these situations that they might be in and formulate a, a course of action um for for being in those situations so that they're prepared you know and be and they're trained to intervene as bystanders the military knows a lot about cultural change. They re- re-socialize people all the time, and um, and and it starts from the top. So so the, the, the approaches are both top-down and bottom-up and structural. So the more we have women in positions of power and women who are good allies to women, um, women in positions of power who are good allies to other women, and not all of them are, um, that's when the cultural change is going to take place, when we... Um, and the other thing the military is doing much better than they used to now is prosecuting commanders who commit sexual assault because they used to be able to get away with it a lot more, and the, the, um, the prosecution of high-ranking officers has increased um, pretty dramatically in the last couple of years. That's important, too. Uh, so you have to come at it from a, from a real variety of, uh, of angles, uh... one of the things that the military has taken made great strides in is that they have um, uh... they have victim advocates so that when someone comes forward and says i've been assaulted there's somebody who's trained to kind of take their case and walk them through the legal system and help them understand their options you know in a court of law the prosecutor does not represent the victim right the victim is is really just a, a witness um, yeah. And so, who who is there to look out for the victims' legal rights? Well, now we have people who are assigned to do that. Um, yeah. And effective intervention is effective prevention because you have a lot of serial offenders. And so, if we hold them accountable, then we make it less likely that they're going to attack somebody else. Um, the military. We have the last uh, time I Martin. I'm
0: sorry. Uh, we Go have ahead. a caller, and we're running out of time. Okay. I would like to try Great. and take this caller uh, in case there's something we haven't talked about. Um, caller, are you there? Are you there? I guess not. Sorry. Uh, we do have a comment in our chat room uh, from Stan, and I think Stan's comment leads me to our ne- my next question for you. Uh, Stan says, "If a woman tells me no, it is over." I think that's the attitude of most of the men that I have ever met. Um, we started out this show talking about how do men who are not rapists benefit from rape. Let's end the show by talking about how men who are not rapists will benefit from eliminating rape.
1: Yes. Um, yeah, and I think I would amend that statement that um, we should think, unless a woman tells me, yes, it is over. Right? So Good. Um, you know, again, you know, waiting for a no is, isn't the way to go, right? You, we have to. Yep. You know what? I think I
0: just cut off Dr. Kilmartin. Um, Dr. Kilmartin, I, I need you to call back if you can. And um, meanwhile, I do have a caller. Let's go see. Uh, caller, are you there? Are you there, doc- um Caller? Well, I'm clearly having some problems with the phone lines. Um, okay, so I, Dr. Gil Martin is no longer here. I hope he will call back and uh, uh, call back in right away, because I really do want to hear his, his message about how men who are not rapists, men who are not um, involved in rape culture, uh, can benefit if we can eliminate rape culture if we can get rid of this notion that um, men have to somehow or other wield power by the threat of rape even if they're not rapists um, if we can somehow eliminate the notion that uh, men can hold power by the threat of sexual assault and um, let's see here okay
1: Dr. Hello, Martin, can is you there hear you?
0: me no no it's not doctor sorry uh, okay hold on please no problem. Okay, Doctor Kilmartin, Martin, is that you? I'm I'm back. Yes. So I got okay. I'm sorry. I'm not quite sure what happened, um, but uh, we do have our caller back as well. Uh, so let's take uh, a quick uh, call. Uh, caller, yes. are you there? Okay. Yes. Okay. Did you have a quick question? Been... We're running out of time, so we yes. Have very to make fast. A brief very fast.
1: Uh, I, I agree a lot of stuff with the doctor is saying, but I truly believe if we wanted to getting more reasonable, I think there has to be consequences when, let's take a perfect example, Duke LaCroix, when a lot of those kids were basically accused of raping a woman, and we found out later on after almost basically jeopardizing their lives okay. and everything
0: All right. that it was because wrong. Of, I, so, so, okay, I am <laughs> going to cut you off simply because I understand what your question is, and I think it's a legitimate one, and it goes back very quickly, Dr. Kilmartin, to the notion of women lie can you address that very quickly before we wrap up the show with how men can benefit from uh changing a rape culture?
1: Yes, I mean it would, wouldn't it be great if women trusted us a little more than they do because we we uh are responsible in our behavior and if and showing them that we are good allies to them. Um I I would agree with the caller that there should be consequences for false accusations and I don't want to get into the um, into the, the, the details of, of the Duke lacrosse case. But many times, you know, what we know about a lot of these cases is that the charges were dropped. Charges dropped does not mean false accusation necessarily. I don't know whether that was a false accusation or not. Um, and charges can be dropped for many, many reasons. They, the, the prosecutor doesn't think that he or she can win the case, or you've got a rich, powerful um, offender who pays off the victim, uh, who then doesn't testify, and that's often a secret, or always a secret. And so we have to be aware that when somebody drops a sexual assault charge, it does not mean that the victim necessarily lied. It means that the case in the in the View of the prosecutor that the case cannot be won, and that's very very different from uh, somebody lied, and sometimes and Thank people you. And that's lie, a very and good point. Sh- they should be accountable for that. I'm, I absolutely yeah. agree with.
0: Yeah, yeah. Okay, so we've got a couple of minutes to wrap it up here, and I can't believe our time went this quickly. How will men benefit if we eliminate
1: a rape culture? Well, we, we would we would be working. Um, better with women like in, in everything and we do in the military we keep coming back to the military mission and mission readiness which the military talks about a lot about all the time which is uh, you know and how can your group be mission ready when people are being traumatized and so when you have work environments and environments of friendships or any kind of social group where people are being respectful for one another to one another everyone is going to benefit from that everyone is going to uh, function better. Um, A good example, sexual harassment, when people are being sexually harassed in the workplace, it affects everybody in that workplace, not just the victims, Uh, and it it poisons the atmosphere. So if we can eliminate all forms of of disrespect, then we're we're going to have better functioning, more pleasant workspaces. And if we can eliminate other forms of disrespect, this is when people are going to be doing at their best in all kinds of places. Um, and so, um, that I, I believe that you know that there, any reduction of violence can benefit all of us, uh, even pe- you know, and not just people who are potential victims. Great. And I think you're right.
0: I think one of the obstacles that I see, just not as but as a person who, who lives in this world, is that there is a level of distrust between women and men. And wouldn't it be great if we didn't have that? Couldn't we be terrifically productive? Um, and it it seems so unfortunate because even with spouses, even with people who've lived together for a very long times, when push comes to shove, every now and then something will come up and you can see just a little flicker of that 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 gender distrust does that make sense at least that's what i've seen
1: goes to me and you yeah. Know, and just too often people you know say oh you know you know, men are just dogs and um and here's, you know and people will make jokes about that and on the face of it it's male bashing which it is right but it's also letting right. us off the hook as if we can't do better so, if we're just simple creatures, uh, then whose job is it to save the world? It's yours, uh, as if you don't yeah, own it. And that's
0: a do. pretty heavy burden to hold. Thank you so much, Dr. Kilmartin. I've enjoyed our Thank conversation. You. I enjoyed end it. our show with a quote. The quote that I have today is from Judith Lewis Herman In practice, the standard for what constitutes rape is set not at the level of women's experience of violation. But just above the level of coercion acceptable to men. Thank you so much for joining us on Three Women, Three Ways. Thank you, Dr. Kilmartin. I am Joyce Michelle. Join us next
1: week.